living in times that have not been seen for a long time, probably not ever in the history of our country. The days are dark. The deception is overwhelming. Not only deception among people in general who are deceived by all kinds of different things, but spiritual deception is running rampant across our nation and around the world. And this deception, the things that are happening now, are not going to uh, decrease. Rather, they are going to increase. And we need to be prepared for what's coming. Don't know exactly when the hammer will exactly fall on our nation, but it will at some point. We can see the earmarks of it already beginning. And there is in the church uh, right now at large, the Christian church at large, uh, a tremendous inability to read what's going on. The deception has entered into the church so that the church primarily cross most of evangelicalism has become places of just entertainment, uh, schemes to gather large crowds. We're not interested in that. That lasts about that long in a person's life. What we're interested in is what does God have to say? And how do we live after that? That's what we're interested in. And so with that, I would ask you to turn with me to John chapter 8. This morning we continue. One of the things we learned this morning in our video downstairs on on, uh, revival, on true revival, was that revival came when the preaching of the Word of God was given systematically from verse to verse and from book to book of Scripture. And that's what we've done here at Bethany over the past 20, going on 23 years now. It's just simply a verse-by-verse study of God's Word that teaches us how we're to live before Him. And I can say that over those over these 23 years of those who have remained, uh, we we have seen tremendous spiritual growth and change in the lives of those people. I want that to continue as long as God gives us grace to do so. So follow with me. I'd like to read verses 24 through. 30. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. 
So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do those things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. We've come to this passage, uh, the end of this little section that we're in, down to verse 30. Jesus is on still speaking on the last day of the Feast of Booths. He has declared to them that he is the water of life, and that was so illustrated illustrated by the water pouring ceremony he has said to them i am the light of the world which was certainly illustrated by the lighting of the lampstands in the court of the women at the temple and now the pharisees and the <clears throat> the teachers of the law are questioning him again and he has already told them uh before many of the things that he's telling them in this passage, but this is a bit of an embellishment from what we saw before. There are many people who will say that there are certain sins that will send people to hell. They cite things like drinking and uh, drug use and murder and sexual immorality. And while it is true that a lifestyle practice of those things indicates that one does not know Christ. These things in and of themselves are only markers of the greater sin. The sin that actually does send people to hell. And it is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief is is the spawn of all other sins that men practice. Jesus, in this passage, now explains what he had told them back in verse 21 of chapter 8, where he said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. The reason they could not go where he was going was because of their abject unbelief. Those who reject Jesus as Lord will and refuse to believe in Him will die in their sins. What He said to them on that day is still true today. The reason people end up in hell is because they don't believe. They don't entrust themselves to Christ. They don't adhere to what he says. To live in unbelief 
is in itself a state of sin. It is the dwelling place of the individual who refuses to believe. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to convince people of their sin. We see that stated in John chapter 16, where Jesus said, when, the, when He comes, the Spirit of truth comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He goes on in verse 9 to say, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Now notice in our passage for this morning here that that Jesus clarifies his statement with him uh, with himself as the object of a person's belief or unbelief. He uses the phrase I am as an unqualified title for his person of being God in the flesh. Notice what he says. <clears throat> He says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. The words I am mean to exist identical to someone else. The pronoun He in your text is not found written in the original Greek text. It has been inserted to make the English more readable. And so the text actually says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now why was that such a, why was that such a, a, an indicator to the Jews? And why did it enrage them so much that he had said that? It was because it was a direct claim to full deity being equal with God the Father. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was using the Old Testament name of God that was given to Moses uh, as he stood before the burning bush. And Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? And God said, you tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. This is called, and it's the same exact term that Jesus uses from Exodus 3 verse 14. This is called the tetragrammaton. Now that's a theological word that simply indicates how that the name of God was formed uh, in the Jewish people and from the Hebrew language. It comes from two words, tetragrammaton comes from two words that explain the name of God referred by the Jews, referred, referred to, who referred to that name as the most sacred name of God that exists. In fact, it was so sacred that they would not pronounce it. Instead, they, when they would come to this word, they would use the, the, the word Adonai instead of Yahweh. And so Adonai simply means Lord. 
But when you in your Old Testament see the word LORD in all caps, it is using this tetragrammaton name for God. The word tetra means four, number four, and gramma means a letter of the alphabet. So they took four letters, there are four letters in the Hebrew alphabet that they put together to make up what we know as the word Yahweh. And Yahweh means the one who is absolute, the one who is unchangeable, the one who is self-sufficient. When God said to Moses, I am that I am, he was saying, I don't need anyone else. I am the one who is absolute. This is the name that Jesus used here in verse 24 when he said to the Jews, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. They knew exactly what he was doing, and they knew exactly what he was claiming. What a shock it must have been to them to hear the name, the unspoken name, uttered by the one who claims now to be God. Yahweh. That's why they attempted to stone him in verse 59 of this chapter. Now there's one more word in verse 24 before we go to the other verses. There's one more word that we need to examine, and that's the word unless. Unless. There is a way for them to escape the judgment, the wrath the condemnation that is coming from God because of their unbelief, there is a way. But there is only one way. And Jesus says, unless you believe in me. Jesus had already made such statements. John 3 verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why is he condemned already? Because he has not believed in the only name of God's Son. Verse 36 of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This prompt, these verses, verses like this prompted the writer of Hebrews to say, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is no escape. There's only one way. And it's through Jesus. There is no light shining through to these Jews. And yet Jesus continues to to offer to them, to show them the way, unless you believe in me. Linsky writes, the unless opens the door of life in the wall of sin. Sin is like a prison, holding captive those who persist in unbelief. 
And Christ can open the door to that wall. Now notice verses 25 and 26, if you would. We can see the results of this persistence of unbelief that Jesus very pointedly uh, gives them. Notice the tone of their question. So they said to him, Who are you? Who are you? This is no more than a practice session for mockery and ridicule that in six months' time they would be giving him as he went to the cross. They asked him, who are you? But the English translation does not do justice here. We read it like that. They said to him, who are you? But that is not the way they would have said it. For the word you in the sentence, in the question, is emphatic. So it would be, you, you, you can't hear the sarcasm. You can't hear the spite in their voices when we read it like that. But the emphatic position of the word you, they're saying, who are you? You, who are you? See, that's different, isn't it? They're making fun of him. They're, they're relegating him to the status of a nobody. Who do you think you are? Who are you? This is what mean-spirited people do when they're confronted with sin or with wisdom from above or or when someone spiritual touches their conscience. They strike out. They make fun. They seek to discredit. They seek to embarrass. Some of you have had that happen to you. It makes... It makes them feel higher. It makes them feel better about themselves when they can, when they can push down or embarrass uh, a, some Christian for his beliefs. After all, Jesus was fully aware of how he would be treated by men. Did not Isaiah the prophet write, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One, one, as one from whom mid men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Jesus answers with the same calm and the same truth that was given, he had been giving them all along. He said, I've told you before these things. They didn't get it. The relationship between Jesus and the Jews is now deteriorating quickly. It started with the religious leaders questioning him for breaking the Sabbath laws in in chapter 5. And now 
They are making a complete break with him in chapter 8. And in the next chapter, it'll change to Jesus' relationship with those whom the Father has given him. And we won't see the Jews until later on. Now notice in verse 26 that Jesus has given these Jews more than enough light to see that he was indeed the Messiah. And now they will be held responsible for their obstinance. He will bear, he will be their judge. And his judgment will be perfect. And his judgment will be complete. And in harmony with the Father's. When Jesus said the Father has given all judgment over to the Son, He means that the Father and the Son judge together. And and Jesus can judge simply because all that He gets, He gets from the Father. And it's absolutely perfect. He speaks... Only the things that he hears from the Father, therefore all that he has previously said to them, will come to pass as he said it. Notice how many times in this passage from verse 21 through to verse 28 that the word speak or said and their equivalence is used. This is an interesting point because... It's the words of Christ that actually move upon the hearts of people. It's it's the word of God that we speak that causes people to see their sin. Causes people to come to repentance. Notice verse 21. So he said to them again. Notice verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, just as I've been telling you from the beginning. Verse 26, I have much to say about you. Verse verse 26 again, I declare to the world what I've heard from the Father. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. Over and over and over again, he uses this transmission of speaking words to their ears, and yet their ears are deaf to his words. They don't understand what he's saying. This is what happens when you give the gospel or share the gospel or share your testimony with someone and, and they don't understand it. It's, they look at you like, what's wrong with you? You're, you're some kind of a nut. I don't understand what you're saying. You've seen it. It's the wall of sin. And unless the words of Christ break through that wall of sin... Unless the light of the gospel shines through it, they don't hear. It says 
He says still they didn't understand that he was speaking about the Father in verse 27. Whenever the Father speaks, Jesus must speak as well. And so he always, he's always obedient to the Father's voice. He's always obedient to the Father's will. Jesus has referred to his Father 29 times in chapters 6 through 8. 29 times. I think that's significant. Not long ago, I had a, I had a child. I don't remember who it was now. Uh, came came to me and said, "You you said this word," and they they had counted every time I had said that word in my sermon over over forty five minutes to an hour, and it was a lot. The reason they didn't understand was because they didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see with. They were spiritually deaf and spiritually blind. They are dead in their sins. They have no capacity to hear or to understand. And even though he had been so open with them, and they were so blind, he reveals to them that there would come a day when they would realize that he was telling the truth about himself and the truth about the Father. When would that happen? He says it will happen when they have lifted up the Son of Man. Now what exactly does that mean? It's used, the word, the words lifted up, it's used four times in John's Gospel. And those two words indicate a single word with two possible meanings. The first is that it means to lift up spatially or to raise up high. Literally. This is certainly what is spoken of. Turn back to chapter 3. This is certainly what's spoken of in John chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. So, Moses, when God sent the serpents into the, the Israelite camp, and they started biting people. Moses was told to make a serpent, put it a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and to lift it up. And Moses was to tell the people, "If you look look on this serpent, you'll live." And the people did. Those who looked were were cured from their poisonous bites, and they lived. The others who refused to to do that died. Well, the picture is very clear that that was a, a foreshadowing of Christ going to the cross. That he would be lifted up 
on a cross. He would be suspended in the air. And so in chapter 3, we have this view of the crucifixion. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And that has connection to the judgment of the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21. Who murmured against God in the wilderness. And God sent those snakes to bite them. The provision of new life was graciously provided by God. And now Jesus is, is showing that as an illustration of what God will do when he is lifted up. And there will be new life for anyone who looks to him, who believes in him. We see that in verse 15. The second meaning of this word, lifted, these words, lifted up, is that of being lifted up in honor or in fame or in position or power or fortune. And it has the idea of being exalted, to be lifted up, to be exalted. So the, so the cross was the means to lift up Christ toward the Father and then to glorify Him, to glorify Christ. And He was glorified when He is resurrected and lifted up to heaven. That's when He was glorified. Now there was a a precursor to that. When Peter, James, and John went with the Lord up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says there that Jesus was transfigured before him into that state which he was before he came to earth as he was in heaven with the Father. And that's why... Isaiah writes in this connection with with him being exalted and being lifted up when he writes in chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So we have two, two forms of being lifted up. One, Christ was lifted up on the cross. Suspended spatially. And now we see that he is lifted up in exaltation, in glory, in power. Turn to John chapter 12. Notice verse, notice verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the next use of this term, lifted up. So what is he talking about? 
Is he talking about being lifted up on the cross? Or is he talking about the exaltation of glory when he's lifted up to heaven? He's talking about both. This is the exaltation that draws all kinds of people to the Son. Now when he says, I will draw all people to myself, he is not saying I will draw everyone in the entire earth to myself. We know that that is not what he means. Because that does not happen and it has not happened. That would be universalism. What he's saying is that I will draw all kinds of people to myself from all over the earth. I'll draw Jews, I'll draw Gentiles, I'll draw people from every nation, every tribe, every language, all kinds of people to myself. But the cross becomes the condition for his glory. If he does not go to the cross and is not lifted up spatially, he cannot be lifted up in glory. It is the entire, the cross is the entire aspect of the glorification which includes the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. So when Jesus says, I'll be lifted up, he has all of that in mind. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26, listen to what it says. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, listen, and exalted above the heavens. Were it not for the cross, none of that would be possible. That's why the cross becomes the central figure in our in our, our, our Christianity. So much so that Paul would say to the Corinthians, I don't want to hear anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For when we talk about a crucified Savior who died and rose again, we're talking about a, glor- a glorified Lord who is alive right now and with us right here. This morning. Now notice. That's why. In chapter 3. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born again. Absolutely necessary. That you be born again. Nicodemus. He uses the same word in chapter 12 when he says that the Son of Man, or when he, in chapter uh, 8 here, when he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be lifted up. The aftermath of his exaltation and glory continues when he's lifted up. It is the glory directed to the Son for His ongoing work through the Holy Spirit. Namely, 
the outpouring of the Spirit, the miraculous works of the apostles, the building up of the church of God, the punishment of the Jews, the second coming for judgment, are all foreseen in this statement when the Son of Man is lifted up. Now notice verses 28 and 29 as we wrap this up this morning. The phrase in verses 28 and 29, he says, Then you will know that I am He, or literally that I am. Then you'll know that I am. And I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me and He has not left me alone for I always do the things that please Him. This is not a prediction of future, uh, of the future salvation for the Jews. He's not saying, you know, when I'm lifted up, you'll, you'll be saved and you'll see me for who I am. That's not what he's saying. For we know that that did not happen. What he's saying is, this is a, this is a, this is going to be a conversion of the thousands who will be redeemed on the day of Pentecost and subsequent to that. Now, he didn't mention Pentecost, but on that day, there were thousands of Jews in Jerusalem at the end of the Passover that heard the gospel preached by Peter and the other apostles that were saved. And so the the word you <clears throat> then you will know is plural. He's not just speaking of these people that he's confronted with in the temple on that day. He's talking about the nation of Israel. They would understand that they were guilty of his death. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Notice verses 36, from verse 36 to 38, Acts 2. Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles said, Brothers, watch, they said to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is what Jesus was talking about back in chapter 8. When I'm lifted up, and all the sequence of the cross and all that happens, my resurrection and my ascension back to the Father, when that takes place, when the Spirit comes and on high and you're filled with the Spirit, you're endued with power, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself. And there were there on that day people from nations around different 19 different dialects of language and they all heard the gospel in their own language and they were saved and this is what happened 
They're saying to them, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent. That's what you need to do. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they repented. And the church was born. Verses 28 and 29 together give us this dynamic picture of the intimate relationship between the Son and the Father. The Son never leaves the intimacy of the Father. The Father never leaves the Son. There is a perfect, holy cooperation between them. So the Father commissions the Son. The Son carries out the commission. And even on the eve of His death on the cross, He knew that the Father was with Him. He says, In chapter 16, behold, the hour is coming and indeed has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet, he says, I am not alone for the Father is with me. The Father's with me. It's in the strength of that last phrase that we can be assured Hear me carefully now this morning. It's in the strength of that last phrase when Jesus said, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. That we can be assured of His presence with us. For He has said to us, He has made promise to us in Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. If Jesus counted on the Father to remain with Him. And He did. And Jesus carried out every commission the Father gave Him. Then whatever Jesus promises us, He will carry out for us. And we can count on it. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Paul at one point said, All have forsaken me. And yet he said, I'm not alone for the Lord is with me. We can say that too. Now finally notice verse 30. I like verse 30. I'm a bit dubious about verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Hmm. Finally, we see the power of Jesus' teaching. So compelling were His words that many believed in Him. Now, that's really all it takes. It just takes preaching and teaching or proclaiming of Jesus' words to save people. That's all it takes. That's the power of the gospel. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the gospel, that that the words of Jesus Christ, if we give them to people, would save them? Yes, we do. And you never know what words those are going to be that's going to light up someone's eyes and someone's heart. It could be the simplest thing. 
The question always remains, and it always does remain, was the faith of these people genuine? When it says they believed in him, was that genuine belief that saved their souls? Or was it simply an emotional response or some sort of mental persuasion What he says in the next few verses after this sets up a dividing line. And it really indicates what it looks like for those who truly believe. But that's for another, another time, not for this morning. Do you believe this morning? Have you... Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is He, is he the forgiver of your sins? Is, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from your sins to follow Christ and to believe in Him? Or do you just play church? You just play in church. Makes you feel good to come to church, you know. Look like, look like you belong to Christ. That does no one any good, my friends. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ in, in faith, true faith, believing. Forsake your sin. Be converted. Follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day, for the time You've given us uh, to worship, to observe the Lord's Supper to be here together, to encourage one another, to hear your word proclaimed. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to change hearts, to, to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, so that they hear and see the truth of your words, that in you there's life, that belief in you is not just an intellectual thing, but it's a, it's a thing of the heart. It's a, it's a giving oneself over to the Lordship of Christ, following Him in faith. I pray you'd get, do that for those who do not know you. Thank you for this Lord's Day and for all that we have experienced this morning. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.